Good evening on this Monday night, a beautiful night in Washington, D.C. We hope it's nice wherever you are. Welcome to another night, another week of Larry King Live. Later we'll meet Cook Giovanetti and we'll get into the subject of dream interpretation. Our first guest tonight is author of the runaway bestseller, Transformation, The Breakthrough. He is Whitley Strieber. There is the book. It is published by Beach Tree Books, a division of William Morrow. And it is a continuation of his enormous bestseller, Communion. Hey everyone ever, and welcome to 20th Century Pop, the show where we try to uh, understand the present while living in the past. My name is Tim Blevins. This is a bonus episode, and I am launching a new show. Well, another one. Yeah, how, uh, how about that? Um, you might already know. Uh, thank you, by the way, for, uh, what, for tuning in. Uh, this is one of those off-week episodes that don't have Bob, uh, sadly. Uh, but they do have a guest of sorts. Today's kind of has a guest. That's that's sort of what I am uh, talking about here. Sort of what uh, what am I doing? What 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 what's what's this? Well, I'm trying to learn from a past mistake. Uh, wherein last week, uh, last Monday, I launched a new show, a new podcast entitled Menage a Pop. It's a three day a week podcast, Monday, Wednesday and Friday to promote it. Um, and each week there's a single guest in each episode of that week, which is probably about 20 minutes uh, each. We discuss a single piece of specific pop culture uh, so that somehow impacted their life and got them uh, to where they are today. Not their favorite band or film or, or TV show necessarily, but uh, the one that sort of could be a very specific origin story for what, uh, a very specific belief Neurosy behavior, either that, that, that sort of thing. Um, and as a show, Menage a Pop, it's, a, it's in its second week right now. In fact, two episodes, as of today, anyways, two episodes have already aired. Um, there's another one airing tomorrow on Friday. And, uh, I'm late to telling you about it, uh, because I didn't really promote it beforehand, didn't really say much prior, uh, prior to posting it. So, in hopes of avoiding that error again, I'm using today's bonus episode as a way of previewing a podcast I'll be doing in about a month, uh, starting June, uh, Tuesday, June 9th. Um, the show is entitled Inexplicable Book Club, and I'll be co-hosting it with my friend, uh, filmmaker Chris Nassini. Chris has been on an episode of this show, 20th uh, Century Pop, before, um, probably about two summers ago. We talked about Star Wars action figures. I'll, maybe I'll link it. You can check that out. Uh, but he and I share a sort of longtime fascination or uh, de dedication, belief, maybe, in all things paranormal and unexplained. Uh, yeah, Bigfoot, UFOs, alien abductions, poltergeists, that sort of thing. Uh, in fact, when he and I first met in college, we sort of bonded over this shared interest, specifically in all the books we read on these topics growing up. There were, you know, all sorts of famous authors, when I say famous, familiar authors, I guess, uh, authors like Bud Hopkins, Ruth Montgomery, Whitley Stryber, and one of my particular favorites, Daniel uh, Cohen. They wrote books on these topics, and both Chris and I, as inexperienced and curious school kids, 
sought them out based only on uh, book jackets and library availability. So we're mounting a show where uh, each month we reread and dive deep into one of these books uh, we best remember, sort of reliving the topic in question, reviewing how the book dealt with it, and seeing if that particular volume left any lasting impression on us. It's not the normal pop culture of the 80s and 90s philosophizing that I normally broadcast out, but but it does share a common theme in that these books that we'll be talking about and and finding these books um, at such an impressionable age and formative time of our our childhood really left a mark on our present day and and middle-age beliefs, uh, ideologies, and and, and practices, really just who we are. So it is my hope with the new podcast that uh, we're able to explore and track exactly how it is these books shaped us into who we are now. Um, That's what the show will be when it premieres in June. Uh, Today, um, on on this this episode of this show, I wanted to share a conversation between myself and and my future co-host, Chris Nassini, where we sort of just explored how it was we came to literature on the unexplained and, you know, what what it was like to be seeing it at that age. It's not quite an episode of the new show, but it'll give you a little sense and sound of who the hosts are and why you might want to listen to them. So I appreciate you checking it out. Um, let's, let's cue up some thematic segue music and dive in on a sort of preview of Chris Nassini and my upcoming Tuesday, June 9th Paranormal Podcast. Uh, Inexplicable Book Club. My elementary uh, school library, and it's probably the same with most uh, people our age, had uh, Daniel Cohen supernatural books, UFOs, movie monsters. I'm sure there was a Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot. Uh, it's a toss-up between that series of books and my parents had, I believe, a Time Life book that was dedicated to the supernatural on the lower parts of the bookshelf that I could get to. Also, oh, in the house, you had you actually had some books of that. Yeah, they had uh, they had one of those coffee table books about the unexplained. Not the more popular one in the '80s. This would have probably been from the '70s. And that was in your house. So as a kid, you you saw this. What what drew you to it? What brought you to the to the spine of it to open it? It was always the Loch Ness monster. Uh, UFOs, and to a lesser extent, Bigfoot. Those were the three topics that always grabbed me. The thought that there was something in Loch Ness, I just couldn't get over that. And I read, I, I, again, from the school library or the local library later on, I took out book after book, including, you know, Tim, I think Tim Dinsdale, who might have been an author who kind of gave up whatever his life was to go be a, a Loch Ness monster researcher. I thought, oh my God, well, there's got to be something to this. And he managed to... F- take some vague photographs of it. So I just, the, the, you know, you're reading books about it. So of course they're going to keep proving their point. And I just took it as gospel as I'd read it. Did you run up against anyone challenging it? Did you either, the books themselves, like there are skeptical books about UFOs if you reach far enough back. I think that kind of petered out for a while because I don't think those books were selling, but you can find skeptics to these topics. Were you encountering that at all? I or? don't remember that. I suppose there must have been grown-ups that would roll their eyes at it, but I don't remember that at all if I was so focused. And I wouldn't go around saying this definitely happened, but I, to me, reading it, I 
it just seemed like, how, how could it not be true? I feel like I did think, and I did tell people this is happening. To me, the, the factual knowledge of this, it, it was like a pursuit. Like this might've been my first, you know, again, we're five or six years old. So what, is it, what does that mean? But like my first crusade was to get to that shelf of books, pull down these tomes and find some truth. Did you have friends that were also into it? Uh, you know, in the in your elementary years? Not, I mean, early, early on, you were talking about the Loch Ness Monster. Like early on when I was five, um, I had two friends, the Rasconis, and we would stay over at each other's house because our parents were friends. And we would discuss the Loch Ness Monster. That one did get in our head. Right. And that was kind of this thing like, when we get older, we'll we'll go to Scotland with our wives, because that's what we thought. <laughs> you, you'll buy the camera, you'll buy the camper, I'll buy the submarine, and we'll find this thing. Like there, there was that kind of discussion right. of it. But junior high, when a lot of this stuff in the late 80s, when a lot of these books that I think of now were coming out, the Whitley Stryber books, a lot of the books, again, about UFO crash of Roswell and things, I didn't have anyone who was sharing in the knowledge. Right. Did you have a circle of friends that was into this? Was there a scene for it? No, I remember we. I would talk about it with friends, and um, we would talk about whatever we saw on TV. Because I, I feel like kids did watch, say, Unsolved Mysteries, but I, I, I don't think anybody ever took it quite as serious as me. I think it always stopped as ah, could be real. I don't know. Anyway, let's go play kickball. Whereas I was always, I was, I could have talked about it for hours. Whereas they probably it was just something else that uh, that that passed through. And they moved on. <laughs> but, you know, I collected comic books. Mm-hmm. I collected Star Wars figures. I wasn't quite into music, music yet, but I understood the idea of collecting. These books, these UFO books, it wasn't collecting to me. It, it honestly was a, It was building my case, basically. Right. Like the more I had on my shelf, the more I knew about it. Right. Which I guess is actually a collector's mentality. But I wanted to talk to people about it. But I think also there was there was a, a thrill in it or a drive in it that I knew something they didn't. Right. Were you ever embarrassed by it? Like, were you ever secretive about <laughs> now I have to go pay for this book or sign this book out? Um, no, but maybe in school, like, re- like taking it to school and then reading it um, at my desk or something if they gave us reading time. I, I, I feel like I can't think of any specific instances, but I can, I feel like I, it may have happened where I was embarrassed by that while somebody next to me was reading a documentary about, uh, or a book about an athlete or something. <laughs> <laughs> See, I feel like I have that now. Yeah. Like I, I'm trying to think like if I, if I'm going to buy a book on the unexplained now, most of the time, sadly I do it online or I go into an occult bookstore. Right. And grab it. And even then, I'm a little self conscious. But back then, no, I don't, I don't think I did. Were you reading everything you brought home, or was some of it just shelf decoration? No, I would read it. And some of it was really almost so sciencey. And where was Mercury <laughs> was aligned with it was really a tough read to get through. But I just felt like a rite of passage that I had to get through it, or else I wasn't taking it seriously. And then that was bookended with somebody's very real account. I mean, I don't know what I think about I mean, I have my own thoughts about it now, but at the time of communion, it was like, like you had both the government and their all their scientists searching were researching this, and now here's somebody's very personal account with it. It really sold the whole thing to me, uh, kind of from both ends of the spectrum. Something like above top secrets discussion of like the secret documents that were supposedly coming out about Roswell made it so immediate that I felt like I had to keep up with these books. Well, plus the media was backing that that immediacy up. There seemed like every two weeks there was another documentary about it. I mean, they were sensational sometimes, but. November 11th, 1987. Ed snapped five photographs that day and changed his life forever. Over the next seven months, he saw the object several times. 
shooting another 36 pictures with three different cameras. Witnesses include his wife and kids, family friends, neighbors, and even city officials. Two other people allegedly photographed the same object. I remember the Gulf Breeze sightings mm-hmm. in the 1990-91 in Florida. There was a series of this very specific-looking UFO that Ed Waters, I think was his name, or Walters. He was a gentleman in Gulf Breeze, Florida, was taking all these photos. He released a book while it was all happening that capitalized on what was happening. And I bought it immediately. I scooped it up because <laughs> sure. I felt like now I've got the information. There, It felt like something was happening. Right. And these particular books reflected that. that. That's the series of UFOs. It looks like it's hovering right over the street, right in front of them almost. Yeah, it's yeah. blue and white. Yeah. And it's got like the dots. It, it was very quickly disproven. Right. I don't even think I got through the book before it was disproven. But I had the book and I held on to the book, which made me hold on to a belief that it could be real. Because again, this is documentation of it happening. There was a really exciting period for me. And I don't know if it's because of what was coming out or just what I was discovering, but like late 80s into the... The 90s, people knew, get Tim a UFO book. There's one in his Christmas stocking. There's one for Christmas. He's going to, that's what I read. Right, sure. And a lot of them are repetitive. I mean, there's only so many abduction stories. And there are the big ones that you read about, Travis Walton and, and the Betty and Barney Hill. When did you, did you ever read early on um, Interrupted Journey, the Betty and Barney Hill story? Or was that something you actually read much later on? Our town library had a first or second pressing, like his 1960s pressing of it. Right. But I think that I got that story from other books. Yeah. Because that was part of it. Anything that mentioned or referenced it, I felt like I had the information. Right. I think the older books, I knew they existed. I don't think they were the relics yet that they are now. Like eventually, it was probably in college or after college, I made it a point to read The Interrupted Journey. I made it a point to read the, I don't think it's called Fire in the Sky, whatever Travis Walton's book was. I made it a point to seek these out because it was, it might have been the start of nostalgia. It might have been something, but something made me want to backtrack it. I think at the time, in high school, whatever, when I was getting these books, these were real events, supposedly. Right. And so as long as I was getting the information, it's like someone who's a World War II nut. They can buy all these books on World War II. They're all reporting the same events. So they don't necessarily have to read all the classics, mm-hmm. like the Battle of the Bulge, which I think is something that may have happened in World War II. <laughs> you, if you know what it is, you know what it is. Right. And you don't necessarily have to find the first book that talked about it. And I think I was treating these events as real events. So I wanted the more up-to-date books. I wanted something new. I mean, again, there is that collector mentality. What's the new book? Right. You know, what's the new title? Did you read Interrupted Journey? When I, you were in I school? don't. I mean, I was aware of their story ever since UFOs Are Real, the documentary, because it's one of the, the featured stories in that. But I don't remember ever reading the book until you bought me that first edition. Um I don't know. That was probably oh. six or seven years ago now. Yeah, that's that's far more recent. I mean, so I had you hadn't read it before. I then. don't think so. Maybe I had taken it out of a library and read it once at some point, but I'd never owned it. So what was the effect of that? Having being in your thirties and reading the original book of that story, uh, reading rereading it, I've read it. I I think I've read it three times since you've given it to me. It's just. Um, it's one of the cornerstones of the of the supernatural book universe. It just <laughs> seems, even at, at at this age, so believable when you read it because it's not sensational in any way. It's all it's their therapist's account of the of John Fuller, uh, John Fuller, uh, yeah, of of their of them coming to him, and it's still just one of I find one of the best books uh, uh, on the on the phenomena, and it's. Um, 
I don't know how I missed that until I think because I was so familiar with the story, I never sought out the actual book, but it was great to read it. Um, the actual source material for the first time. Does reading the source material, does it change your opinion of the event or had your event changed? Like, I, I guess something to talk about now and, and, and it, it might throw some cold water in all this. Do you think a lot of what we were reading were real accounts? Well, something like that. I like reading, what is it, material when it's the, the first iteration of the material, the source material. Sure, or the, this uh, is the original recount. At reading it, it doesn't feel like they're they're trying to gain any more than just impart the story to you. It doesn't feel like they're trying to sell it and the movie and the website and the merchandise. It was just really matter of fact. Uh, as an in, as an interesting case, but it does want to sell you as a book. I mean, that was that was printed in magazine. And to talk about the interrupted journey, it was printed as excerpts in a magazine to get your interest, and it was published as a book. I mean, it wanted to sell I guess itself so. as a I guess, book. I guess it's such so benign compared to what what uh, pushing a product is now to me that it just it feels more genuine. It's like that book, having that book, and that's what the show is about. Definitely resells the whole thing to me. Just when I read that book, I'm like, this is a believable account uh, and seemingly with the right intentions. It doesn't feel like a, a commercial for the, the merchandise. The book does. The book, right, exactly. Which is what I get from so many websites uh, or magazines now. What about books that recount the Betty and Barney Hill story that aren't that book? Like when they're referenced in something else... Um, is that using the story or is that just telling the story? Well, it's like anything that happens after the original, it takes on its own life. But the original account, um, they don't, I mean, when you're originally telling it, they don't know that anybody cares or if it will be believed. Um, but when it's, when it's re being reused in a book, uh, I feel like people know what reaction that story will get and if it will work in their book and if it will help sell the book. And I know there's no way to necessarily know this. You kind of have to, it's, it's guesswork, but do you think you would have understood the weight of the book and gotten through the book if you had read that, say, in eighth grade? Because I saw it in eighth grade and I never signed it out. That's the one I never pulled off the shelf. I've always believed that story since I first heard it at whatever age, I've just always believed it. I even still. Oh no, me too with the story. Just the, I'm talking about the book itself, I, the, that initial account. Can you think of any UFO books you were reading that did that in real time for you? Like we lived through communion hitting well, the communion, stands. So there's a great example. Communion, I, I thought all the same things about, I thought, oh my God, this guy's story, he's gone to the therapist, he's... It seems so real, but I, did you I, read it? Did you read? Communion oh, I definitely I read out? Communion. I don't know if it was as, as soon as it came out, but but within its first year or two for sure. But mm -hmm. it doesn't hold up. I mean, it's still a great story, but I just I've lost kind of my uh, res respect f for Whitley Strieber as you know, not as an author, but as if some as a true uh, abductee. I don't know that there's any more any believability in it anymore. But is that the difficulty? He is an author. I mean, is that maybe? Make it yeah, like where I mean, maybe, maybe it is. I mean, and he's gone on to write so many books about it, both supposedly nonfiction and fiction after the fact, right? And that's what complicates it for me. He is the storyteller. He's also the subject, and he's told the story. You're talking about capitalizing on stuff and then the rights, and I think that's something I see with with him. 
Here is Jill on the toll-free in Hepburn, Saskatchewan. Hello. Hi. Good evening. Good. Um, I was just wondering, I know it must be very frustrating. A lot of people don't believe you. Yeah. I was just wondering how you deal with it. I would never try to impose this on people. I think there's a reason. Oh, like visitors to me, if you don't believe it, I understand. Yeah, there's a reason that the visitors keep it secret. I mean, they they are not trying to impose themselves on people. Therefore, I have in my book adequate for someone who's had contact. This book's got proof in it. For someone who is who thinks it's probably real, this is going to take them over the edge. They're going to decide it probably is real. For someone who does not want to believe in this, the book's not going to push them. Judy in Tampa, Florida. Judy, hello. Hi. Good evening. Hi, Judy. Hi. I was wondering um, if you had had any marks left on your body. Any probes or anything like that? Or anything? Uh. I would be curious to go back to that book. Because Transformation, the sequel, is the one I know more. That's the one I read first. Right. Because I knew the communion story, but I read Transformation. I would be curious to go back to and see, one, does it read well? Is it an enjoyable, engaging read? And two, what, yeah, what is my take of it now? Because maybe it's more convincing now. Maybe, and maybe it's not. I don't know. These, these things exist in a duality when we don't get them in real time. Right. Like the interrupted journey predates our knowledge of it, informs our knowledge of it, and then we read it. So it is the source material communion. I wonder what you're – have you gone back and reread it like in the last 10 years or so? Not in the last so, 10 years. I, I've definitely gave it a second reading, but it was probably still in the 90s when I did that. And were you still buying the story, believing the story, buying the story? Uh, it's probably somewhere in the middle at that point. I'm like when we talked about it when we met in college. I don't even know how much we were buying it by then. See, I, I was. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe I was too. I just can't remember specifically. But it wouldn't be too much longer when I fell out of it. Uh, with yeah, that. I'm not sure. I would be curious to when I turned on that story. When I turned on any of these stories, because it's true. I don't. You know, looking at my shelf right now, I don't necessarily think these are all factual tomes anymore. I want to, and I've read most of them, but I'm just like, I don't know. And and that's... Well, I mean, just if you, beyond the UFO stories, how do you deal with the, all the books on Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster? <laughs> I don't read them anymore. Those, it's weird. Those seem childish to me. I don't think I believe those, which is frustrating. I will still pick up like a, a Loch Ness Monster book and read a few chapters, not because I... And it, it, it breaks my Is heart. Is there anything new in that? No, it, it breaks my heart to say that I don't believe it, but it's still so fun to read. Uh, just the creepiness and letting your imagination run away with believing. And I, I'm not even saying that I don't think the authors at the time didn't believe it too. It sounds like there are some people who ended up committing their whole lives to the search of it uh, fruitlessly. So I think <laughs> it, it wasn't like they were writing just a bunch of BS to sell a book, but I don't. And which still makes some of those books so enjoyable because the pursuit of it before it was for sure a fake is still fun to read. Bigfoot, maybe not so much. I don't, I've never a, a huge Bigfoot guy, but I, I wasn't, I mean, I read it as a kid and of everything, it's the one that I think science would maybe nozzle up to the most. <laughs> right. You could say, well, it's conceivable, <laughs> but. I mean, is there one great Loch Ness Monster book? I can't, like, I can I can rattle off tons of classic UFO books. I can rattle off enough classic ghost books where it's like, if you want to read about the subject, read these. I can't think of a specific Loch Ness Monster. I still have a half dozen. I don't know if they are the book, <laughs> but The Monster of Loch Ness and In Search of the Loch Ness Monster. There are a bunch of them. I don't know that it ever had its uh, 
it's Project Blue Book version of the Loch Ness Monster. (laughs) But those books are still a draw for you. It's still interesting. I mean, to still read about the research teams and finding the photo of the flipper or the obscured image of a neck and a head under the water. I don't know if I'm just reading it. I can still look at it through a a 12-year-old's eyes, but it's still enjoyable to me. Um, like a ghost story or, or something like that. But um, yeah, it's not the same though, knowing that I just, as a kid, I, I was, I, I could, I could let my imagination run away and believe it was really happening. I thought for sure the Loch Ness Monster was happening. It was any day they'd get the definitive footage. And that's the thing, I guess, like, I feel like Loch Ness Monster stories are for kids. Clearly they're not. Cause like you said, there are people who dedicated their lives to finding it, but I'm just like, who, that's why I'm wondering who's writing a new Loch Ness Monster book and who is that for? Well, do you remember just recently I sent you that photo of a, of a, a thick, expensive magazine that came out? It might have even been a Time magazine with about the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah, for who? Uh, I don't know. I always wonder. I mean, they must do some preliminary research to see if they can sell those. So who's buying? I mean, I didn't buy it. <laughs> and if I'm not buying it, who's buying it? And I would be interested to go back to one of those books then and see how it reads. I mean, obviously, Daniel Cohen's books, and I think he's one of the authors who wrote a lot about things like Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster. He was writing for children. So we were the right age for that. So no wonder they stuck with us. No wonder they dug into us. And 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 I get that kind of nostalgia. Whether or not I believe the subject matter, yeah, a book written for a kid as a kid is going to hold a place in my heart. It's like Roald Dahl, or it's like a He-Man storybook. It's like any of those things. I liked it as a kid, so I have that nostalgia. I would be curious to go back to an adult book on the Loch Ness Monster, the same way like going to the Interrupted Journey or Communion, books that were clearly written for adults. Another book that always pops out, and you mentioned it, and I wanted to get to it, um, Maybe we'll talk about it in depth down the down the road. But the Mothman prophecies. Mm-hmm. I think I got turned on to the Mothman a lot later, maybe than you. And I remember getting the book and read it, and it was creepy and fascinating. But on the inside of the book, it says, um, "This is a work of fiction. All characters and even portrayals and portrayals in this book are the product of the author's imagination and are used fictitiously." I always thought that this was just a story Keel made up. I never didn't realize till later that it was actually a real phenomenon. Is it a movie adaption um, of the book? Is that the movie cover? Yeah, it does have that that Rorschach. Yeah, I wonder if that's what it is because I I've never seen that part. I this that is the book I go back to the most. That's the one I reread. So this is two thousand one. That's when the movie of it came out. But the out. copyright is nineteen ninety one. I I definitely wasn't aware of it until this version of the novel. Yeah, the book was published in this in nineteen seventy five. Oh, it was the original. The Mothman, the original Mothman prophecies. Yeah, I think it might have had a different title, "Strange Visitors from Outer Space," and it was reprinted as the Mothman prophecies. Any source on the Mothman quotes this book. Daniel Cohen's books were quoting that book. I didn't realize that. Yeah. I, I mean, I didn't, I knew the title. I knew it existed. I didn't read it till after college graduation. So I think the summer of 97, The Mothman has always been one of my favorite stories. Yeah. It's a, it's a fascinating story. Yeah. And that book, I found it, um, I found it, actually I found it at the Boston Public Library. I was working at a coffee shop. It was the hot summer. I was either before, I think it was before a shift. I went in there to cool down. I was perusing the, sh- the shelves and they had an old beat up, I remember very clearly what the cover and everything looked like, Copy a hardcover copy of it. I signed it out. That was me finding the source book. And I keep going back to it because it is the point of view for that story. It's written by John Keel. It's written in the first person. It's written as his experience. 
So it has this sense of it unraveling for him, like a real world, um, like a real world Fox Mulder without the government connections. This book is his like interpretation of a real experience or what he says is a real experience of something that would probably have been forgotten without this book. And I think that's, that's at the heart of these books, I think when they actually do feel like they are the prime teller of this story. You know, you're talking about the interrupted journey, you know, thinking about the Bud Hopkin books, which are recounting these alien abductions for the first time or, or anything that Stanton Friedman writes, or even though we're questioning Whitley Stryber, I, I think unlike Daniel Cohen, who I adore and loved as a kid, his books maybe taint or damage the subject matter. Hmm. You know, we're getting a first-person narrative from something like the Mothman prophecy, and and feels like research. Whereas Cohen's just compiling. Maybe, and I'm that's selling him short. He's a great writer, and it's good for kids. But I, I think these other books that I keep going back to, they are the ones where the author is central in right. some way. They're the ones who found it. So I think, kind of going forward with the show and future episodes, I think maybe that's something. You know, take these books one volume at a time and, and, and you know, it's and discuss the subject matter like we're doing, but also, you know, look at like how the author is presenting it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to definitely getting to that for sure. There is something inherently important in these topics and in my, at least my development and relationship with it, it sounds like yours as well, that comes from them being as books. Right. And so I'd be curious to, to look at them one at a time and really see how that book translated to telling the story, impacting our belief, and just sort of sticking with us. Because I think every title we mentioned tonight rings in our head. And we have them. We have them on our shelves. Just circling back to what we've talked about earlier about could you have the same magic if it was all, if you discovered it all on the web. I love also uh, cruising YouTube and finding documentaries. But I feel like I can enjoy all of these and I can I can enjoy the web content because I already have a foundation with the books that allows me to understand uh you know the kind of randomness of 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 the internet um that I I I know that that's for for us and that's kind of gone now but I feel bad that kids coming up who are interested in it probably won't experience it the same way and I don't know that I'm right to feel bad for them but it's I don't know that any generation will have the same connection to books like these that that we did then well I think that that might be true I'm not going to feel bad because I think we're going to try to share that I think this might be a way of saying these things exist it's important to keep them in circulation it's important that they are accessible or republished or, or, or just referenced so sure yeah, we'll see going forward. We're doing people a great service. We're doing people a good service. <laughs> yeah, great. So yeah, books about UFOs and Gugga ghosts and the Loch Ness monster and a Mothman. <clears throat> Is any of it real? Maybe. Uh, does that matter? Probably in some scenarios. Uh, but for that show, for, for Inexplicable Book Club, the podcast uh, Chris and I will be debuting, we're not looking to prove or, or disprove these phenomena. We'll question our beliefs and the stories behind them, but, but ultimately, I, I, I think it'll share a little DNA with uh, this show, the one you normally come to, uh, 20th Century Pop, uh, because Chris and I are going to be talking about the medium that first introduced us to the phenomena 
the books of childhood, the paths those books set in motion, which is not how paths work, but there's probably a metaphor in there. Um, I think the experience of finding and reading these books um, informed who both Chris and I became. So it'll be interesting to uh, chart that part, you know, um, that pursuit, that, that, that learning of the fact that there might be something out there called the truth, to uh, bastardize a phrase that's not actually the one that's on the poster. Um, anyways, thank you, Chris Nassini, for having that little practice conversation. That sounds weird, you know, practice conversation. But but also, uh, thank you to the listener, you, listening, uh, for indulging that conversation. Um, Inexplicable Book Club will debut on Tuesday, June 9th. Uh, it'll be streaming once a month on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, You'll be able to find it on the uh, Not A Hologram webpage at nahpods.com. The first episode will premiere there, and it'll have links, um, again, on how to find it and subscribe to it elsewhere. Uh, so, And I would really appreciate you checking it out, if it seems of interest. Uh, next week, you can check the show you normally come here for out. Uh, 20th Century Pop will be back with a new episode with Bob Canning. And I think, um, if all goes well, with with a little anniversary wish to a certain episode of a certain space saga that's not Ice Pirates. So yeah, tune into that. Again, visit NAPODS, NAHPODS.com for that show, for past episodes of that show, for the most recent episodes of that show, to subscribe to episodes of that show, and follow that show on Instagram and Twitter both at 20popcast. Um, that's it for now. It was a shorter episode today, wasn't it? Yeah, that might be why you you made it through. Uh, talk at you next week. You know what it could be? Past life experience intruding on present time. Could be erased memory stored in the collective unconscious. Wouldn't rule out clairvoyance or telepathic contact either. I'm sorry. I don't believe in any of those things. Well, that's all right. I don't either. But there are some things we do, standard procedures in a case like this, which often bring us results. Well, I could go to Hall of Records and check out the structural details in the building. Maybe the building itself has a history of psychic turbulence. Right, good idea. I could look for the name Zool in the usual literature. Spates catalog. Open spirit guide. Yeah.